0: Hi folks, this is Jack Spear. with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. Today is Monday, October 7, 2013, and this is episode 1222 of the Survival Podcast, but since I'm in Colorado on vacation at this point, um, this is going to be a TSP classic episode. We're going way back, way, way, way back to episode 75 to talk about reloading today. Before I bring back that, uh, that, that uh, piece of uh, archaic history at this point, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors of the day today. Sponsor of the day number one today is uh, Sawtooth Tactical. I'll tell you what, (laughs) I was already talking to the guys at Sawtooth Tactical. We didn't have a sponsorship program officially yet, but I was already talking to, to, to the folks over there when this episode was made. That's how long they've been part of this community. Awesome, awesome folks. Veteran-owned, veteran-operated in the sawtooth wilderness of Idaho and everything you need to live that tactical lifestyle. Check them out today. And remember, they do provide a discount for members of the support brigade. Next up today is Ready-Made Resources, the company that does what it says and says what it does in the name of the company itself. All the resources you need for your prepping, ready-made, ready-to-go, point-click-buy, sent to you with lightning-fast service, great shipping rates, and uh, great pricing to boot. Check them out today at ReadyMadeResources.com. Also want to remind you guys, make sure you're hanging out over at 13skills.com. We continue to make that site better and more interactive for you. Uh, it's going to be like crazy that we're going to be talking about 13 and 14 uh, very soon, because 13 and 13 will be done. And you'll either have done it or you hadn't done it, but hopefully you've taken the walk somewhere. The good news is by the time we're there, this site's going to be what we should have built in the first place. It just wasn't in the cards for it to be it right away, but the site is really turning into a place where people can lean on each other, learn from each other, teach each other, help each other, and keep track of their progress. So uh, check it out today, 13skills.com. Also consi- consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available nowhere else. Like my Insider Weekend Review Member Support Brigade-only videos where we talk about what's gone on at the homestead, what we've learned, things like that. Kind of a different side of uh, the Spearco household, stuff that doesn't get shared with the general public. Discounts to tons of things. It's just a great deal. You can learn more by going to the Survival Podcast and click on Members or look at the Member Support Brigade banner and click on that. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty and prior service and first responders like EMTs, paramedics and firefighters. All of you guys carry, uh, qualify for a discount. If you email me before, not after you join, with service discount in the subject line. Anyway, um, again, we're going to be doing a classic episode today, and I just want to note right here that if you're accustomed to the fact you email me, and like a lot of times within like an hour you get an answer, that's not happening this week. Um, I'm on vacation. I will be checking email from the road, and I will be answering emails from the road. But I will not be, uh, the typical level of customer service that you're accustomed to. I'll also say this week would be a bad time to send me lengthy, laborious emails about some idea you have or something like that. Uh, I don't know, generally read every detail in, in an email like that, but I at least, you know, give them a cursory overlook. Uh, a lot of stuff like that's gonna be white noise this week while I'm on vacation. Hold that till the following week and, uh, we'll be back. Even the following week, though, the week that's coming up, I want you to know there's going to be a lot more reruns. We're running a workshop on my uh, on my homestead from the uh, from Tuesday until Sunday. I'm going to have people here, so they're going to be it's going to be rerun city as I warned you about last week. Uh, but hopefully, there'll be good ones, and we can take a look back at how TSP became what it is today. And uh, I think you'll absolutely hear a difference in the call quality or the the, uh, the audio quality because the episode you're about to hear. Is from my Jetta, my 2006.5 Jetta Diesel TDI that I used to uh, podcast from with uh, my little recorder and my Plantronics headset. Before that though, let's take a look at the year 1222. Uh, we're entering into a period of time that's kind of a snoreboard with some of the history segments, uh, but there was something interesting that happened in 1222, uh, and if you lived in Cyprus, it was really bad. It was called the 1222 Cyprus Earthquake. And it's good that we look at things like this because we have a tendency to be myopic in our views of disasters. And every time there's a disaster, it's something man did. I mean, that's what they thought back then, too. You upset the gods or didn't do your sacrifice right or something. But the reality is the climate... And the Earth itself are fluctuating, moving things. They are not as stable as uh, as we've been led to believe. And the potential damage that can be done in an earthquake is massive. And it's something we need to be prepared for. It's part of why we prepare. So, um, what was the damage of the 1222 Cyprus earthquake? Much of the damage was caused at La and Nicosia and other parts of the island. But the greatest damage was done at Papos, where there was a great loss of life. Papos Castle, a Byzantine fort, was destroyed and had to be rebuilt by the Lusgunians. A modern excavation at Papos Castle found the remains of a man who apparently climbed into the castle's main drain to escape the earthquake but was trapped by falling masonry. The sea retreated from the harbor but returned and then flooded the town, so, a big tsunami. A church is said to have fallen, burying the bishop and his congregation. Monks of the Franciscan order abandoned their church in Papos after the earthquake. The castle of Sahuanta Colones was uh, built only 30 years er earlier overlooking the harbor. was destroyed by the earthquake. It was never rebuilt as it was no longer needed to protect the port, which had dried up. The earthquake permanently chained Papo's rendering the harbor unusable and moving the shoreline seaward. It no longer had a protected anchorage. In other words, the whole port was destroyed permanently. The face of the island was changed. The entire geography of a significantly sized island was altered permanently by one earthquake. And uh, this earthquake, it was just like uh, 9.5, no, 7.0 to 7.5 estimated Richter scale on this earthquake 7.0 to 7.5 changed the entire island um, I think as we go through history with this little segment we'll have more and more reasoning in our own minds that there are things that go wrong and we do need to be prepared. Now one way we can be prepared is being prepared to feed ourselves or protect ourselves in a grid down scenario and the more you shoot the better trained you are to do both of those, and the more fun you can have. And reloading is really a great hobby. It's a great way to save money, and it's a great way to deal with these things we occasionally have called ammunition shortages. And there's certain things you can do with reloading that you just can't do with off-the-shelf ammunition. You'll hear about one of them today. And the load I mentioned, I do have the published load data for you in the show notes. I didn't want to give it out on the air back at the time because I was in a car, and if I made a mistake, you know, you don't want to make mistakes with loading data. It is a published load. I had Back when I published this uh, show, I had people worried that it was a squib load, and low pressures turn into high pressures, and you blow a gun up. This is a published 44 special load you're going to hear about, and it's... Uh, if you wanted to have a weapon that was very effective out to 50 yards amazing penetration capability certainly capable of taking deer sized game and yet was so quiet you could uh, hear the hammer on the gun fall when you pulled the trigger without your uh, you know your federal uh, stamp and 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 what have you then this load would be the way to go there's nothing illegal about it either and uh you'll hear more about that and other things as i take you back to episode 75, which was originally published October 16th, 2008. So here we go and get ready for a major shift in the audio quality. Today is Thursday, October 16th, and uh, we are here together again uh, during my 50-mile morning commute. It's like one friend talking to another about what's going on. And uh, remember, it may be a one-way conversation when you're listening to the audio, but there's many ways to give me your opinion and make suggestions, etc., uh, back at me. There's our forum, uh, there's our blog, and, of course, you can send me email at jack at podcastcom if you want to uh, participate in the discussion on another level. And I do try to get everybody's opinions filtered back through, maybe not always by identifying a person by name, Because a lot of times a lot of you have the same uh, opinion Uh, But I do try to get things back through And uh, I'm going to start off today with an interesting little question that I got uh, from two different people And I'm sorry, it's been a while I've tried to say out of the political mess And this is a little bit political because it talks about the Obama campaign Um, But it's just an interesting question I was talking to my son about it last night And I decided I needed to share this with you Because it's just, again, it's just an interesting uh, colloquialism, I guess What the question was is, Jack, you say folks, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 times on just about every show that you do, um, and it doesn't bother me at all when you say it. I kind of like when you say it. I've also heard a lot of speeches from Michelle Obama, Brock's wife, and I've heard her say folks this and folks that, and it... Makes me crazy, or I don't like it. Once it made him crazy. Once they really don't like it. What's the difference? How come you can say that word and everybody's okay with it, and when she says it, like it drives me nuts? What's the problem? And uh, I'll tell you what. Here's what I think the issue is. When I say, folks. Um, I'm including all of us, including myself. When I say folks, it's usually something like, folks, we really need to think more about this. Or, folks, I'm telling you, if we don't, right? When Michelle Obama says folks in her little stump speeches, she's like, well, folks in California are, and folks all across the country are, right? Her elitism makes it very clear that she's not part of those folks, All right? Folks with me means all of us, and folks with her means you, and you are somehow separate from her. That's why it bothers some of you when you hear that from her. Now, that shouldn't influence your vote on the election. If you want to vote against Barack Obama, there's a ton of reasons you can find to vote against Barack Obama. And if you listen to this show, the fact that the guy's anti-gun is about as big as it gets. Uh, But again, I'm not here to influence elections or tell you how to vote. That's not my deal. I'm voting third party in the presidential election because my state's going to McCain. If you're in a state that's either going to go to McCain or Obama, it's known. The One side or the other is so far ahead in the polls that they're not even campaigning in your state. Really think about clicking the box for somebody else. And don't let somebody tell you you're wasting your vote. Wasting your vote is voting a party just because you don't like the other guy and not making any statement whatsoever. Um, If you're in Pennsylvania or Ohio... Some of these other states—it's about 13 to 15 states that are up for grabs that they're fighting over. If you're in one of those states, you got to take. You pick your man. If it's Obama, you vote for him. If it's if it's McCain, you vote for him. All I say is, uh, you know, know why you're voting for him, know what the guy believes. And I was listening to some people that are going to vote for Obama today on the on the news, and they were saying things like, "Well, he's very articulate, and I like the way he communicates." But they don't know what the hell he's communicating. That just sounds good. Um, If you want to vote for the guy, know why you're voting for him. Be honest with yourself about why you're voting for him. In other words, know why you believe what you believe, and then pull the lever for whoever you most believe uh, will fulfill the, the things that you want for your country. That's fine. But if you're in these states that are just you know 10 points to one side or 10 points to the other, your only opportunity to make a statement is to vote third party. It really is. And you're not going to give the election away by voting third party. It's a tremendous lie. So uh, I'm going to kind of get off my political box here. It's not going to be a political show. I just thought that was an interesting question, and it brings up a lot of interesting things. And uh, sorry, folks, I need to pause right here. I've got people doing something really stupid in front of me. All right, folks, uh, I'm back. That was just one of the hazards of doing these broadcasts on the road. I had somebody that was just two different people frozen at a merge point uh, for no reason at all. And I drove through them, and uh, now we can get on with the show. I uh, didn't even cuss, uh managed to hold that one in. Anyway, folks... That covers that. Let's get into the topic of today's show, which is going to be on reloading. And I'm going to do my best to make this show work, and uh, we'll see how it comes out. I did try to do a show on reloading before. I didn't like the way it came out. This time, I'm just going to kind of go through it the way I would talk about reloading to you. If we met at a gun club or a bar, and we started talking about it, and you said, you know, I've been thinking about getting into reloading. What's it like? What do you do? Uh, what are your recommendations? Instead of trying to elaborately describe the reloading process and how it works and exactly what you do uh, because that's really not suitable for audio. It's something you need visual, you know, video, pictures or something like that uh, to really comprehend. So I'll give the basic steps of reloading, but just know that it's not going to be, like after you listen to this, you're not going to run out and start reloading without additional support, materials, and information. Uh, but I do hope to demystify a little bit and make people realize it's not as complicated, I think, as some people make it out to be, uh, that not very long ago, 100 years ago, everybody in the world that fired a gun probably reloaded and 100 know. 150 years ago everybody reloaded because they were all muzzle loaders and uh you know either flintlocks or percussion rifles and they had to reload uh Real brief explanation of what the reloading process really is. After you fire that gun and you eject that case, and it's not a bullet, it's a case. The bullet's the part that goes downrange, that flies through the air. Uh, the piece that's left in your, your gun, your pistol, your rifle, uh, what have you, is the case, uh, or often called a shell, in, uh, in, you know, in the lines with a shotgun. That is probably the most expensive component of all the components that make up a cartridge. And cartridges, you know, when you have the fully loaded round. Those components are the case, the primer, the bullet, or with a shotgun, maybe the shot, all right? And the powder, and with shotguns and in certain old-style uh, black powder loads, there's waddings, all right? I'm not really going to talk about waddings today. I am going to leave that out so somebody doesn't come in. You have to what to, to wad, okay? Anyway, those are your main components. And bullets in powder and primers are relatively inexpensive compared to going out and buying cases with them or buying a brand-new, fully-loaded retail pack of shells from the store, all right? So the biggest reason that people reload today is to save money. Money. And it is a good way to save money if you're smart about how you do it. I'm going to tell you some of the mistakes I made as we go through the show, so hopefully you won't make them too. Uh, because it can become very expensive as a as a hobby uh, rather than a money saver if you're not careful about the way you do things. You'll you'll always eventually, if you shoot a lot, recoup your investment, but you don't have to dig yourself into a hole first. So uh, again, I'll get to that. But when you're done with that that case, it's perfectly good in most instances. And there's things. You you have to inspect cases for if you use them multiple times. I won't go into that because, again, it's something I can't really describe without being able to show you examples. If you get a good reloading manual, and the three that I use, that I because I, I like to get my information from multiple sources, because anything from a manufacturer is going to push their product, but I've got a pretty balanced view by reading the manuals by Lee, Spear, and Hornady. Um, and those those three manuals are what I use, and I get all my load data out of and, and that I work out of, and that I taught myself the process of reloading with. I didn't have anybody come to my house and say, this is how you set this up. I ordered the stuff. I got the instructions. I followed them. I watched, and looked in the manuals, and I just did it. And it's not that hard. Anybody can do it. You just have to be cautious and really follow instructions and document everything you do. That's the big thing. Every time you load rounds, they need to go into a specific box or a bag or some type of containment, and they need to be labeled as what they are, how you loaded them, every single component, the, the bullet, the charge of powder, the type of powder. Uh, and, uh, and and the case manufacturer, the primer manufacturer, all that data needs to be there. Because if you're going to ever replicate that load again, you're going to need to follow it exactly. Changing one component of a load can change the way that the load performs. So it's important to document everything. So you take that case and you use a resizing tool, and there's various different types of them. Uh, there's a tool called the Lee Loader. It may be something you want to start out with if you want to start out cheap and just get uh, some low volume. And reloading going, and actually that thing works. It's a little bitty case that all the stuff comes in. It can fit in a shirt pocket. It's you don't even need a set of what are called dies for this thing to work. All right, it's not a press, it's a tool, and you put the case in it. And you actually knock the case into it with a hammer, and you when you resize you also deprime, which means you're knocking the spent primer out of the case, and you're resizing the case because when you fired the gun. Massive amounts of pressure have occurred inside that case. And that case expands into the chamber of the gun and fits it perfectly. And then slightly... Re- sizes back down, but it's changed from its original dimensions. So when you size, there's two ways that you can size. There's what's called full-length resizing. That's where you completely resize the case back to factory specifications, where if you resize a 30.06 full-length uh, case resizing, it'll go into any 30.06 anywhere in the world, made the proper specifications. That's what you do if you don't know where that round's going to go next, if you're going to maybe maybe you have multiple rifles in the same caliber and you want to load for all of them. You would full length size. If you acquired brass from somebody else, once fired brass, uh, your buddy shoots .30-06s, he doesn't reload, he goes down range and uh, lets off two boxes and he saves the cases for you, brings them back to you. Even if you're going to always fire them in one gun, the very first time that you resize, you'll want to full length resize because that cartridge is now perfect for his chamber, not your own. The other method, and this is often why the person that reloads will make much more accurate ammunition for his rifle than any factory round, is just neck sizing. And that means the only thing that your resizing actually does is it makes the neck the right. You know, sizes it back down so that when you put the bullet in there, there's tension then it and it fits right. And it leaves the case exactly in the shape that it ended up. The reason that works so well, if you think about it, once you've fired that round and that brass is form-fitted to your chamber and your rifle, it's a precision fit. All right? And when you put it back in your rifle, everything's in perfect alignment. It's like making a custom round for the gun. That's exactly what you've done with and, and, and when you make some types of wildcats which are uh, maybe I take a cartridge like a two seventy and I change its shoulder and I load a two seventy around the factory specs, um with a low reduced you know, somewhat reduced load, and on my rifle, uh the, the shoulder is allowed to move forward and I fire it and bang and I've made a new case. Alright, so it, it's that's also called fire forming, alright. So that's takes care of your Resizing and your two different types of resizing. All this may sound complicated, but when it comes down to what you're doing, you take the, the cartridge, you put it into your, your reloading tool, you pull a lever, or with that little loader, you smack it into the uh, to the resizer, and that's it. It's done. Alright, so it's not that complicated In a lot of instances You'll need to put a little bit of lube On the cartridge And there's different ways to do that And you can follow the instructions that come with your equipment That you purchase uh, on how to do that But just know that a lot of times you need to do that And one of the things that I've learned Is when you do lube your cases It makes a lot of sense to, If you're loading uh, maximum loads Or high, even somewhat near the maximum pressure loads uh, To clean those cases off from lube I've had rounds that obviously were not too high of pressure with a little bit of excessive case lube left on them that ended up stuck in the chamber after firing, which can be a sign that the pressures are high. In this case, it was just that that lube was causing the cartridges to stick, so that's a little tip for you. Once you've done that, you've resized the case, you need to use a priming tool to put a primer back in the case. The primer's a little uh, little round thing at the case head, right? That's what the the, hammer, or the, uh, the firing pin impacts. sets so the primer off, that ignites your powder, your, your bullet goes down range, right? Um, once that's done, you then move into charging with powder. And there are tons of different powder tools out there. Um, I've used the dippers, the Lee's, Lee's little dippers, which are like little scoops, and there's kind of a right way and a wrong way to use them, but there are, if you follow the loading instructions, they're one of the safest ways. They're also kind of slow. I own a, uh, a Lee Perfect Powder Measure. That's what I do most of my reloading with. I really like it. I think it's a great tool. Uh, it feels kind of cheaply made because it's made out of, Rigid nylon and plastic, Uh, but it throws very accurate charges for me. It's very easy to set. I can't get in exactly how you set, uh, but it's based on cubic centimeters. And there's a chart that comes with it. There's a chart in the Lee manuals. You look up your powder, and it gives you a number, uh, how much cubic centimeters one grain of powder is, and you set it. You you throw a charge with it. You check it with your scale. Uh, And it's always a good idea when you're setting a powder measure, or even if you've set it, you've done some reloading and come back to then check and make sure it's throwing accurate charges uh, with a powder scale. Uh, you, you, that's, that's really, really important uh, because you do not want to get into a situation where you're putting even a few grains over uh, into a, a cartridge. You can end up blowing a gun up with that. So you do have to be safe. You have to think about these things. When you follow procedure, reloading is a very safe hobby. All right? I don't want to scare anybody. I just want to reiterate that you have to follow the procedures that come with your equipment. Once the cartridge which is uh, charged with the powder you then move into seating the bullet. You seat the bullet uh, to a specified length, and I can't really get into that, but you can measure it with calibers. I use Lee reloading dies with uh, with my press, and usually what I do is the first time I load a new cartridge, I'll start with side, you know, seating it to the same length as a factory round, and with Lee it's really easy. You put a factory round in, you open the uh, the headspace on the die uh, way, way beyond what it needs to be, you lower the press down, you hold it down, and you turn the top seating part of the die in until it makes contact with the top of your case and then you set the set ring and that's it and it's it's a 10 second process uh, I've never used anybody else's die so I don't want to put anybody else's dies down uh, but I've, from the instructions I've seen, it looks kind of complicated and tedious. And setting the the, the the seating depth with a lead die is simple, quick, and easy. That's all I can say about that. If you're not familiar with what dies are, if you buy press a press, you know, which is the, the, the device that actually runs the cartridge up and down so they can be sized, uh, so they can have a bullet seated, and eventually, if you're going to crimp your bullet, so it can be crimped, um... The die is what actually is set to handle, let's say, .30-06, 270 38 Special, forty four Magnum. All right? And for every cartridge you want to reload, you need a set of dies. Dies are just basically a tool. All right? There's dies in lots of things outside of reloading. But in reloading, it means a set of tools that go with your press that are specific to the caliber that you're re- – not really the caliber, but the cartridge that you're reloading for. Because you get .308 and a .308 the they are both 30 caliber. They're both very similar cartridges only the one shorter than the other. But you absolutely have to have a set of dies three oh eight and a separate set of dies 4306. Uh some of the handguns actually are dual purpose. For instance, you can buy one set of dies and reload for 38 special and 357 magnum or one set of dies to reload for 44 special and 44 magnum. Uh, you have to adjust them separately as you reload for each, but Again, instructions will come with your dies, and I can't over-recommend Lee dies. I think they're probably the best dies out there. Um, As far as value, they're they're inexpensive compared to the competition, and I know they're easy to use. And for first-time reloaders, they really may be the way to go. Your last step, if you choose to, is applying a crimp. Different dies use different methods to apply a crimp. Lee has a die called a factory crimp die, which will put a crimp in any round, including one, don't have uh, a crimp groove, uh, which if you look at a bullet uh, pulled from a, a, a cartridge, some bullets you'll see a little groove that goes around in them, and some you won't. And in many instances, you, it's it's difficult or impossible certain dies to crimp around if that bullet doesn't have that that crimp groove. Uh, but with the factory crimp die from Lee, you can crimp anything. A little bit on crimping. A lot of people think that uh, rounds are more accurate without a crimp, and I guess they can be. I pretty much crimp everything. I'm a survivalist. Uh, I expect that my ammunition could be knocked around, beat up. Uh, It won't always sit in a nice, perfect target box. I don't shoot 1,000-yard matches. I need my ammunition to be effective, reliable, and be able to shoot minute of deer uh, instead of minute of angle out to 100 yards. That's what I expect out of my ammo. That's what I get. crimping will ensure a certain level of reliability and there are certain guns that you might reload for that you will always have to crimp for heavy recoiling handguns are one of them because on that heavy recoil it can move the bullets uh, any tubular uh, magazine so like your 3030 uh, Marlin that where you're loading cartridges into the uh, into the tubular magazine those need to be crimped uh, but just follow the stuff that comes with your manuals and the process itself isn't that hard and I Probably spent more time on the process than I should have, but I just want people to understand that th- that's the whole process. And I could have reloaded a box of shells while I was describing it, even with what's called a single stage press, which means I do one step and uh, then I have to take the die out and put the other die in and do the next step, etc. So that kind of brings me to my next point. There's, there's. Three, I'm going to call three main types of tools. There's an, uh, an independent tool that does everything. Now, the only one I know of, and if there's somebody is I'm not batching with any, any other manufacturer, I am a big fan of Lee as a Lee loader. And I'll put a link to that on the site, and there's a whole list of cartridges. And for many people, especially if you live in an apartment, you don't have room to set up a press or anything, it may be a good first step. Uh, especially if you want to do low-volume reloading, maybe a box of shells a week or something like that. Um, It it looks a little crazy to think about uh, tapping a a round with a hammer, uh, but I've tried one. They work just fine, and uh, they're a very safe tool if you follow proper procedure and the instructions, and that's true with anything. Then there is uh, what's called a single-stage press, and that's exactly what it sounds like. It's a press that you can only do one stage of reloading with. So after you uh, deprime it, resize your case, for instance, uh, you would, let's say, maybe do 20 rounds or 100 rounds or however many you're going to reload. You would all do all of them resized and deprimed. And then once that was done, you would then move on to um, priming, and you'd use a tool to do that. And then, after you primed your case, you would charge it with powder, and then you would need to seat your bullet, and you'd put a new die in your press, and you'd run the bullet in, and then, if that happens to be the same die you use for crimping, you would seat all your bullets, reset it to crimp, do all your crimps, or put your, if you're using lease Factor crimp die, you'd put that in, you do it. So, it's a much slower process than what's called a progressive press. Progressive press, once you get it running, uh, and you, you got everything set up on it. You pretty much put a new round in, pull it, and it either automatically or you manually turn a, uh, a, a turn a, a turnstile, I guess you'd call it, at the bottom, and a round falls out the other side. You stick a new case in. And you keep doing it and each station in this progression on this progressive press is a different station so while you're depriming and resizing one case all right the case next to it is being uh, primed and possibly depending on which press it is charged with powder and maybe the next one's being charged with powder because it's already been primed and then the next station that one is getting a bullet seated into it the last one is getting a crimp and then when you put the new one in it moves into station two and that last one pops out. So it's a very very fast reloading tool. All right, they're obviously more expensive than single stage presses. My advice, and you don't have to take it, it's just my advice. It start out with a simple single stage inexpensive press uh and I can't really recommend too highly what Lee calls the anniversary kit, which gives you a scale, uh, trimmers, gives you everything you need. All you have to do is buy a set of dies, and you can start reloading for one cartridge, all right? Um, and it's a very low cost, and even if you're going to go into a different manufacturer in the future, it's the lowest cost way to see if this is a hobby that's going to stick for you, uh, to really get you into it without going completely cheap on the little loader. So one of those two methods is kind of how I recommend you go into this first. When it comes time to pick a progressive press, shop around, look at what everybody has to offer, make a choice from there. Most reloading dies are interchangeable with other people's press. So you can take lead dies and stick them into an RCBS uh, press. You can take RCBS dies and put them into a lead press so you're not locked into one manufacturer. Um, I just really recommend you do that. Now, I did that and I think it was a good decision. But the big mistake that I made is I decided that I was going to buy everything I needed to reload for the majority of the guns that I owned at the time. And I bought these little things that, that that hold the case heads, a full set of those, which was relatively inexpensive since I bought with Lee. I bought the case trimmer gauges for all of them. I bought dice for everything, and I spent a lot of money when I first bought my reloading equipment. And then I went out and I bought components for every... Uh, Pistol and rifle round that I wanted to reload for. And I bought multiple types of powder uh, for the loads that I wanted to try. So instead of, let's say, buying stuff for my 3006 and going out and buying one or two types of powder and one or two types of uh, bullets and then starting to experiment from there, I went out and bought multiple powders and multiple bullets and 30 caliber and reloading dice for my 3006. I also bought them for my 308. I bought them for 44 Magnum. Uh, I bought them for 3030 Winchester. All right. I bought them for 38 special and $357 magnum. I bought it for 223 and I did this all at one time. And you may say, well, if you have the money, what's the problem? Well, the problem is reloading takes more time than you think it does. And when you're first learning, you're not sure about what you're doing, so you kind of fumble around with things. Uh, you tend not to be as organized initially as you end up being once you get used to what you're doing and start thinking about it and developing a system. So all those extra things end up being stuck. And when you have lots of stuff, it's kind of cluttered and it's everywhere. And you're trying to, you know, try to set up a little reloading bench for myself in my home office. When I bought all this stuff, and I had these drawers, they had all these dies everywhere, and I was constantly pulling things out, looking for things. And I think if I would have just started with one set of dies and reloaded for one cartridge developed a load or two that I was happy with and those became my loads and that's what I loaded for that gun or for the, all the guns with that caliber and or that you know particular cartridge and once that was done I said okay now I'm going to do 223 and developed a load for my 223 all right, and then once that was done went out and got a set of dice for 44 Magnum. One one powder or two powders and several different bullets for just 44 Magnum developed and settled on load or a load or loads for 44 Magnum. If I would have done it that way, my cash outlay would have been smaller because I wouldn't have bought as much stuff. Because when you go on a shopping spree, you're like, I need this, I need that. You're buying four types of powder for one uh, one round. And, and a lot of times that powder may not be something you can use in your other rounds because a certain pressure curve. Curve to it, uh, and if you start reloading, you'll learn about pressure curves. So my, you know, my my Hodgdon 414, uh, I can use it in my 3006, I could probably do loads for it with a 308, but I can't go dumping it in to my 357 Magnum. So I'm buying, you know, multiple powders. And it, it just you know, take your time with this. Is my message. If you do that, it'll become a fun hobby that you enjoy. If you don't, it can be really overwhelming at first. So one set of dies, one good set of equipment. Uh, and again, I can't recommend leaving. Highly enough, but I can't fault a person for you know, RCBS or uh, Hornady or Mech or any of these other manufacturers. They're all high quality. I have an uncle that uh, has RCBS equipment. He's had it for, God, the guys in his 90s. And I, I remember being a little kid, uh, not even old enough to shoot yet, three or four years old, going up to his place. Uh, he lived just up the road from my grandfather's and going out into his shed with him. He had all this cool stuff. And, and seeing that you know, big green press sitting there uh, that long ago. So we're talking 32 years ago. And he's had it for God knows how much longer than that. And he loves it. And he still reloads. 90-year-old man, he reloads to this day. And he shoots in his backyard. And, uh, you know, there's not many places left where people can do that. So that's a testament to RCBS. So just because I'm a fan of Lee, I'm a fan of Lee because of what I, it's what I use. Uh, but, again, the reason I chose them was I knew that they were all good and they were the most affordable, and I wanted a bunch of stuff. All right, so that's, uh, that's why I picked them. Uh, now, just if I could, I'll give you a few reasons for reloading, uh, maybe some that you haven't thought of. I mean, one as a survivalist is simply that you can't always maybe depend on the fact that you're going to be able to get your, your hands on ammunition. And if you know the reloading process, if we got into a complete, you know, shit-hit-the-fan scenario someday, uh, there are ways to make your own black powder, uh, pour your own cast bullets uh, from any source of lead that you can beg, borrow, or steal. And while you wouldn't have the high-pressure rounds that, that we fire today, if you teach yourself to load cast bullet loads, if you have reloading equipment and reloading knowledge and a little bit of knowledge of chemistry and the ability to melt lead and molds, you could virtually assure yourself of always being able to produce ammunition under any circumstances. But that's out toward the fringe of survivalism. The other side of that is, as long as you can get components, you can load ammunition. Well, my feeling is, if you can buy components, you can probably buy factory ammunition. So, that one's mitigated a little bit. Uh, you don't really save a lot of space on storage, I, I guess, other than you're reusing cases, so there's less cases, they're the bulkiest component. Uh, bullets, when you buy a lot of them, still weigh a lot. Powder cans you have to be stored safely. Just like any ammunition, so there's not much of an advantage there, but it is a good skill to have in a survival situation. Uh, The big thing is saving money. You can reload for a fraction of the cost of factory ammunition. You really can. Um, it's, it's a huge savings. Uh, so that's my biggest reason for it. It lets me shoot more. Uh, another reason is accuracy. As I explained, when you start loading uh, ammunition that's specific to a gun, you tweak the powder charge. You don't worry. Which gives me the most velocity? You, you try multiple loads. What you do is you sit down with your 030 This is why it makes sense to start with one car. Cartridge and one gun and load for it until you're happy and then move on to the next gun you want to reload for. So you sit down with your 030 You sit down with the powder you've chosen and the bullet you've chosen. You get your load table. And maybe you load five cartridges of the most moderate load in your manual, five cartridges of the next charge up, five cartridges of the next charge up, and five cartridges of the next charge up. Odds are, in most manuals, you'll not even have gotten to the maximum load. And a lot of times you don't need a maximum load. It's not so that you can make ammunition that's more powerful than factory ammo. Factory ammo today is loaded to maximum in most instances because they know that the uninformed buy ammunition based on velocity. That's what the muzzle. Which one's got the highest muzzle velocity? That's what I'm going to buy. No. Right? So then you go out and you shoot a group with each uh, batch of ammo. You see which one shoots the best. And then you begin tweaking a little bit by maybe seating your bullet a little further in or a little further out, checking with a caliper so that it meets specifications and following instructions, of course. And eventually what happens is you end up with the perfect charge with that powder, with the perfect bullet, set at the perfect length in a case that's been form-fitted to that gun. No factory ammo is going to shoot as accurately in that gun is that custom-loaded ammunition. So the customization to the gun and better accuracy is something that is really not necessary for hunting accuracy or self-defense accuracy. But Assurance sure as hell is a lot of fun, and it gives you a lot of pride to take a gun from a factory situation where you set a scope on it, you go out to a range, you start shooting with it with some good quality factory ammo, it shoots one-and-a-half-inch groups, you spend some time working custom loads up for it, and you're able to put a three-quarter inch group on paper it's it's really a lot of fun so it's a hobby more than it is just a skill and then the next thing is being able to load ammunition that you can not buy anywhere all right and 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 that is a, a huge advantage to me and i'll give you a couple examples of some things that i really like to shoot one is a load that I've given out before, which is a highly reduced load for 44 Magnum. And I really wouldn't call it a reduced load. It is actually a very—I had to dig through some old manuals to find it. It is a very old load that hasn't been used much because most people that are shooting heavy slugs in 44 caliber uh, are going to 44 Magnum today. But there was a time when 44 Special was the most powerful 44 uh, cartridge you could get your hands on. And at that time, people did shoot it with 300-grain hard-cast lead bullets. And I found some loads in the older version of the Lee manual uh, that they don't even print anymore uh, for 44 special loads. uh, With, I believe it's 4227 powder, do not reload off anything you hear on air, all right? I'll publish the load data for this uh, in the post, and you can see the load data for this again. Uh, But it's the lightest load published for 44 special with the three hundred grain hard cast bullet. You can't buy that in a store. There's no way you'll ever get your hands on that round unless you load it. So what's so special about it? Here's what's so special about it. It sounds quieter than most uh, manual caulking uh, air guns. You know, these are like the Gamos and the beamans and stuff that have that loud crack to them. It's a very quiet you don't even have you wouldn't even have to suppress it. It's so quiet that you can hear the hammer Hit the case, and it's because it's still quite powerful. But because of the long barrel of, and this I, I load this for a rifle, by the way, folks, not a handgun. I'm sure it'd be quite loud in a handgun, but in a rifle, in my 44 Magnum 1894 Marlin, I hear the hammer hit, and it's crack. I mean, it's about as loud as it is. Um, I could probably, I would never do this, but I could probably fire that in my backyard. And even with neighbors on both sides of me, nobody would get alarmed. People would be like, somebody just hit a nail with a hammer, right? And that's what it sounds like. That said, I can group it into a fifth-size hole at 50 yards. After that, it starts to deteriorate. It just doesn't have enough oomph to really remain accurate much past 50 yards. But 50 yards is quite a ways out there. Uh, At 25 yards, it will penetrate 7 inches of solid pressure-treated lumber and then continue into the ground for another couple inches into dirt, all right? So it has a lot of penetration power because it's a slow-velocity, very heavy slug, all right? What this is to me is a, it's a, an amazing survival round. It's accurate enough out of 25 yards. If I was walking around with it, it's my only choice. I shoot squirrels in the head with it. It won't blow them up. If I shot a deer with it, it damn sure would kill them. I guarantee you that it's up to snuff with any of the old black powder, you know, patch and ball stuff. It's, it's got at least that much power. With a head shot or a neck shot, it would drop uh, a deer-sized animal to the ground instantly because it's quiet all right. Uh, it doesn't attract attention where you may not want attention. And it's very cheap to reload because you're reloading uh, a lead bullet. Uh, lead bullets are cheaper than jacketed bullets. Uh, if you want it to really be cheap, you can cast your own lead bullets. and there's uh, Maybe I'll do a show someday on that. It's a fun little hobby to do as well. Uh, so that makes it ultra cheap. And the other thing that makes it cheap is you can reload a ton of rounds from one can of powder because you're using such a small charge. This would, uh, this makes it something you can shoot in high numbers, uh, very inexpensively, which means you can practice with it like crazy. All right, you don't have recoil, you don't have noise, you can use it to teach younger shooters. It's just an amazing little load that I could never come up with if I went out to buy them in the factory. All right, same cartridge, same. Gun, another thing I can't buy. Hornady makes a 44 caliber slug, uh, and most of the handgun cartridges in 44 Magnum top out at a, uh, a 240 grain jacketed flat or hollow point. And then there are some 300 grain stuff. But this 265 grain flat point was made for a cartridge called the four forty four Marlin, Alright, Which is a great woods cartridge in a lever action gun. But there's no factory ammunition of, that I'm aware of anyway that has that bullet loaded into a 44 Magnum case. But if you get Hornady's manual, there are loads listed for it. It's very safe. And that bullet is extremely tough, and it's designed for higher velocities. The 240 grain slugs that most handgun ammunition have are really designed for handgun velocities. And you get a big velocity boost in a 44 Magnum when you put it through a 20 or 22-inch barrel. Alright, so I've got a heavier slug. That's tougher, that'll do a better job on Deer Size game for true hunting with that round. And I can build that custom cartridge. And so there's another example. And that's a full power, full bore load, uh, pushing that 265 grain slug. And it's just the bullet that makes it unique there. I can't get that round loaded that way. Another example is I load very reduced loads for 3006 for practice. And when you're teaching a new shooter to shoot, you can step them up from, let's say, a 223 into a 3006. But when they first start shooting that 306 and they're getting used to the gun, its dimensions, its feel, you can build confidence in them by letting them start out with a round that's loaded made it to 30-30 velocities. It has a lot less recoil and muzzle blast. So you slowly can move a new shooter up in power with a gun. And that reduced load, is if it's 30-30 velocity, and I had a new shooter that I wanted to start hunting deer with a thirty oh six, we could use that round loaded with a bullet that's designed for those lower velocities. He could hunt with that gun, and as he got older or she got older and was ready to step up in power, we could keep one gun and let that shooter kind of grow into the gun. All right, These are all things that one cannot do with factory ammunition, until recently anyway. Remington actually now has some reduced loads for popular calibers like 270 and thirty oh six. If you don't want to reload and you want to take that approach, that's a good way to do it. Uh, but you'll never have the flexibility. You can't. Those are those reduced loads aren't reduced to the levels you can safely, if you use published data, uh, uh, reduce your loads to uh, with, with proper reloading techniques. So those are just some things. Now, uh, folks, I hope this show went well. If you're not into guns, if you're not into reloading, it may not have. Even if you are, it may have sounded like I'm all over the place. Let me tell you, this is the second time I tried to do this show. Uh, I am going to publish today's show uh, so there is a show today. I've wanted a show on reloading, we now have one. This was a difficult show to do it's hard to explain these techniques driving in a car but hopefully it's just made you aware of and familiar with and maybe given you the confidence if you've always wanted to reload to take that first step and even if it's just a little $20 tool and buying some components and getting some experience with it you know and i'll put links to all the major manufacturers on the on this post uh, so you can look at what they have and uh, you know decide which equipment's right for you if you want to take the step into reloading uh, but Personally, what I can tell you is when I started, it was about I wanted more accurate ammo, I wanted things I couldn't get anywhere else, and I wanted to save a lot of money. Now when I reload, I find it very centering. And it takes me out of all the crap that I deal with every day. Because when you're reloading, you have to pay attention. You have to pay attention to having the right charge, the right component, doing things safely. You've got to wear safety glasses. You have to follow your instructions. You have to document everything. And because you're so focused, because you know you have to be, What it does for you is it pulls you out of your boss being on your ass, your spouse being upset with you, the work that you have left to do, the grass that needs to be mowed. For that time, for that hour, for that hour and a half, for that 45-minute period, it's the only thing you're focused on. And it makes it a very rewarding and enjoyable hobby, and it will add to your skill set. And I believe it should be part of any survivalist plan to eventually teach themselves at least the basics and give them the capability to reload for at least a few calibers of their primary weapons that they keep for themselves and their families. And I think that when you start adding to it the ability that you can make custom ammunition... And not just a custom accurate ammunition, but custom ammunition like my 44 Special Load for a 44 Magnum Rifle. Uh, it, it starts to get really cool with what you can do. Just follow my advice and trust me on this. Take it slowly. You can always buy more. It's hard to send stuff back, and it sucks when you have to sell it on Craigslist for less than you paid because you bought what you didn't need. All right? My final piece of advice on reloading. Do not. I'll say this again. Do not use reloaded ammunition in your home defense weapon. Your shotgun, your pistol, your rifle, your carbine, whatever it is. But if you keep a gun in the home loaded and prepared for things like burglars entering your home, use factory ammunition. All right? because there's nothing wrong with using reloaded ammunition for anything out to hunting. And if I will shoot a deer with it, I'd shoot a man breaking into my house with it. But it's the same thing when I talked about, you know, your, your black tactical-looking shotgun with heat shield and all and having a DA use that. If you get some overzealous DA that's anti-gun, that's in the system, and there's lots of them out there trying to make a case uh, that you as a lawful homeowner actually just wanted to kill the guy that broke in your home, and he was a poor victim... And it does happen to gun owners, so don't think it can't happen to you. When you use reloaded ammunition, you give that idiot another. Piece of ammo himself to prosecute you with. What he will say is that this guy was so into shooting somebody that he went out and bought the most powerful handgun powder he could get his hands on, and then he went out and bought these bullets that are that are called cop killers, and, and then he put them together and he built this round, right? he, you know, and he created these things so they would expand and kill people. And you know what? When you buy ammunition from a store, that's hollow point ammunition. It's exactly what it is. It's why hollow points exist so they expand and they dump their energy. They do a lot of damage and trauma. But if you buy them from Winchester or Remington, You were a lawful gun owner that went out and purchased suitable home defense ammunition and used the gun that you had available at the time. If You've reloaded the ammo. You've built custom ammunition for killing men. I don't believe that's true. I just believe that that's the way it will be used to to prosecute you with, and I don't want to see it happen. So that's my advice, and I've read I'm sure in the Lee manual, that's where I got that original piece of advice, and it stuck. And I believe in my, my set of Hornady manuals that's same point is made. So this is not my original idea, but it makes a lot of sense to me, and that's my final piece of advice on reloading. Other than that, give it a try. Uh, I also want to throw one last thing, and I know a lot of hobbies people like to involve kids with. This is one you can eventually get it right yourself. Know exactly what you're doing, have a complete system set up, be completely organized. Then you can start involving kids with it in a very supervisory controlled way. This is not uh, something that you should let kids be involved with while you're still figuring it out yourself. It will add to the possibility to make a mistake. You end up with something like a double charge where you have two charges instead of one into a shell. You end up with a blown breach. Uh, So be safe, and one of the ways to do that is don't let inexperienced people or people with limited attention spans in fact, I would say unless you're with a mentor that's a reloader already, when you first start, close the door and be completely alone with your thoughts and really think about what you're doing until you develop a system. Uh, so that's my final piece of advice on this. Again, folks, I hope this show came out okay for you. Uh, tune in tomorrow. We'll go back to some more practical stuff where even if you don't give a rip about guns or ammunition, uh, you'll enjoy the show. Again, this has been Jack Spierka with the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live a better life if times get tough. It makes you wonder where your money went. You can scream, and you can holler. It really doesn't matter, because it all gets spent.